Armino Stepman. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Enmid Burke Foundation, a home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we have a full docket today. Um, we're going to kick it off with Josh. Uh, he's going to talk us through the story with Mark Zuckerberg admitting uh, that Facebook suppressed the Hunter story, actually at the encouragement of the FBI. Um, we're going to continue our coverage of the Mar-a-Lago raid um, with by uh, Ben is going to be talking about the affidavit that was released, or I should say redacted affidavit that was released in part. Um, and then I'm going to cover this student loan forgiveness gift that I mentioned last week. It didn't indeed come true. The Biden administration is going to be giving out massive loan forgiveness. Uh, and finally, Emily is going to be talking about uh, this very interesting issue of basically prime age uh, men who have completely dropped out of the workforce. They're not employed. They're not looking to be employed. They're not in education um, or or any other kind of training uh, and, and, and uh, how that, that has changed and how that's going to affect um, so much of our politics going forward and, and our country. So uh, with that, let me toss it over to Josh to, for our first topic. Okay, so our first topic today is kind of the intersection of intelligence community and the, the intelligence community in the deep state and of course our big tech oligarchs and that's actually a perfect transition to flag for you the listeners and the viewers that are big tech following Co-host Rachel Bovard will make her triumphant return soon, so thank you for bearing with her pregnancy and her absence, but she's doing well, and we're excited to welcome her back. So, yeah, let's talk about Mark Zuckerberg and the FBI. So this story is relevant, I think, for both those reasons that I, that I already fled. It's relevant for intelligence community, FBI, rot in the deep state purposes, and it is independently relevant for big tech reportedly private adjuncts of the government perspective. So what happened in case you've been asleep under a rock is Mark Zuckerberg went on Joe Rogan's highly popular podcast, and he effectively admitted that the FBI reached out to Facebook and warned about the Hunter Biden laptop story. It's unclear, I, I, I guess, exactly how specifically they flagged the exact fact pattern, but they basically said, be on the lookout for Russian misinformation, Russian disinformation. And of course, as soon as this story hit the New York Post, all the general, you know, all kind of the Clapper, Brennan, all the kind of the Obama, Biden aligned deep state types immediately kind of sprung into action and said this is Russian propaganda. And we know what happened from there. Twitter obviously censored the Hunter Biden laptop story from even as, as, as far as privately messaging it. You cannot DM it in your Twitter DMs. Facebook did not go quite that far. But what Mark Zuckerberg did admit to Joe Rogan is that the algorithms effectively severely depressed the story. So it would not show up really highly in anyone's newsfeed, um, thus confirming really, I think, what a lot of us had independently concluded. And there are all sorts of questions that are raised here. This, of course, happening just a handful of weeks after the unprecedented Mar-a-Lago pre-dawn raid from the FBI. The FBI has been in the crosshairs, I think, of a lot of folks on the right for many, many reasons, many of which is, uh, Ben has talked about pertaining to the Russian collusion delusion. And going back, obviously, to Carter Page and Kevin Kleinsmith, and you know, all of us kind of know this tale by now. So really, I, I, I'm going to let Ben, I think, focus on kind of the FBI aspect of this. The, the big tech aspect of this is the, is the piece that I'm a little more kind of personally interested in. 
So from my perspective, this is just another just glaring, a glaring obvious data point that our purportedly private big tech platforms are truly private and name only. They're pinos, you know, if you want to call it kind of like a, an analog of rhinos. They're, they're private platforms and name only. These are basically state adjuncts at this point. Vivek Ramaswamy and Jed Rubenfeld, the Yale Law School professor, really kind of hammering home this theme for the past couple of years. They had a Wall Street Journal op-ed maybe in the, a week and a half, two weeks ago or so, that it was a successor to their outstanding January 2021 op-ed, basically saying, treat these companies as state actors, because they really, time and time again, do, sh do show themselves to be willfully malleable to the puppet strings mastery of the government. And you know whether it, it was Jen Psaki at the White House podium last summer, basically saying that, oh, of course, we're going to tamp down COVID misinformation. And this most recent op-ed from Ramaswamy and Rubenfeld kind of goes case by case and shows how they uh, basically coordinated on, on the nuking of Alex Berenson from Twitter. That was the Biden administration's doing all along there. So the Zuckerberg-Biden story is just a massive, massive, massive confession of the extent to which the federal government and the Democratic Party in particular, when it controls the levers of power, treats these purportedly private platforms as just being state adjuncts. Now, from a public policy perspective, all that should do, I think, is augment and accentuate many of the various policy cries that some of us in kind of the big tech skeptical right have been pushing for for, for years now. I, I mean, Facebook in particular, if it is truly going to be this supine to a federal government, should be treated as a common carrier, I think. I, I think Facebook is, is a perfect candidate to be regulated the same way that a, that a phone company is regulated as a common carrier. Various other companies, perhaps maybe like antitrust, or excuse me, like, like Amazon should be uh, just kind of broken up in good old antitrust fashion here. But from a big tech perspective, I think this story is a really, really, really big deal. The final thing I'll say, and then I'll just kick it over to you guys. It, it really kind of, from my perspective, I feel pretty confident in saying that big tech probably you put this election in Biden's column, honestly. I mean, if you look, if you look at the 40 to 50,000 votes by which Biden won like across Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Honestly, the percentage of people who said that their vote would have gone the other way had, the, had they heard the Hunter Biden story, I think it's hard to say the big tech did not steal this election, to be honest with you. And I feel very confident in that now. But I'll, I'll toss it open to you guys for your thoughts on this. Well, I'll, I'll be brief and uh, take on the kind of FBI angle of this. Uh, on the one hand, this is a shocking story because Essentially, you have, well, this would be shocking at any other period in American history because you have the security state saying jump and then big tech essentially saying how high. And while you know Zuckerberg claims that there wasn't a specific directive over the Hunter Biden story, obviously there's an implicit assumption that if something like that arises and then you have all of these uh, deep state officials from past administrations saying this has all the classic hallmarks of Russian disinformation campaign, uh, if you take Zuckerberg's words at face value, and I'm not sure if we should or not, given that it would seem that he's probably perjured himself in, in front of Congress before, uh, at minimum, you have implicit, uh, implicit First Amendment violation here, which shouldn't be at all surprising because, of course, you had government officials when it came to the coronavirus saying you need to police your platforms. The president saying, I think, like Facebook and other networks are kill literally killing, getting people killed. Uh, et cetera. So this would be just one more data point in uh, what has become our brave new world. Uh, it in any other period in American history would be stunning and staggering. Uh, but I think it also shows us just another leg 
of what I dubbed at Newsweek for Josh, the ultimate American information operation in terms of the Hunter Biden story. So you have all of these security state officials, former security state officials on the outside saying this is all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. Then we've now found that within the FBI, they characterize the Hunter Biden laptop as Russian dis disinformation. Consequently, all throughout 2020, it seems based on the whistleblower accounts that there was essentially a standing order not to probe that laptop because it might be Russian disinformation. Then another leg of this effort was that you had FBI officials holding what was characterized or cast as a defensive briefing to the likes of Senators Chuck Grassley, I, be I believe Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson, certainly Ron Johnson at a minimum, basically saying that they might be the victims of a Russian disinformation campaign around Hunter Biden and the Biden family's dubious dealings while they were investigating those very dubious dealings, which was all intended to throw cold water on their investigation because that defensive briefing leaked out to the press. So anyone who dared to investigate this was cast as either a, a dupe or a useful idiot of, of Vladimir Putin's regime or worse, uh, which of course the starting point for that narrative was Russiagate. Uh, and then you had on the other hand, the protection of the Biden family by our security state in a whole variety of ways, including the information operation around the letter from these 50 plus officials, which was then parroted by the media, used by Twitter to justify its censorship and then FBI going to Facebook prior to the election and censoring. And from Facebook's perspective, they would probably make the argument, this absolves us of any sin because it was we were just listening and taking advice from you know, our trusted federal authorities here. Uh, so it absolves themselves. And then also Zuckerberg made the claim that we still did a better job than Twitter in this. The last point I'll make is looking forward to the midterms and then 2024 and beyond. This is, this is something that Zuckerberg can point to when the government again goes to him and other social media companies to be on the lookout for certain information to help try and swing an election, whichever way is preferred by the regime. Emily, do you want to, I guess I'll just jump in. Um, this is the, this seems to be the shape of so many of our problems, uh, this kind of public-private partnership model. Um, in this case, I actually think not only does it make the case stronger uh, for, for example, what Josh said to, to uh, treat some of these companies as common carriers, it also actually allows our legal system as is to deal with some of this um, through the court's more effectively, right? When you have this, it's much harder. The, the harder part of this problem from the policy perspective is how to deal with essentially collusion between entirely independent private actors um, versus the government actually like sending an email from somebody in the FBI that says suppress this story or suppress information of this type, right? Which is, and um, folks may, may or may not remember about maybe five or six weeks ago, I brought up this case in my final thoughts that the NCLA, um, Philip Hamburger's outfit is actually pursuing with regard to COVID. Josh mentioned, you know, um, that as well. It seems like the government has kind of gotten sloppy, right? Um, I actually think this is kind of a good thing for our side. If they're sloppy enough to send these emails, because we know that the kind of cultural collusion um, and this kind of coordination is, is actually... Um, it, you don't need to send an email because because of the structure of what is increasingly this managerial class who have very, very similar opinions, political opinions across between the agencies and the Fortune 500 and the tech companies, right? That's much more 
difficult under our legal system to deal with. But if somebody's sloppy enough to send an email, we should absolutely be all over that because um, essentially the government cannot pretend that the First Amendment doesn't exist by contracting around it. And that's kind of the, the structure of what has happened here. So I actually think this is this is somewhat good for us in the sense that it, it um, allows a hook in even for the traditional uh, structures of our legal system. Of course, it leaves open um, the, the questions that Josh raises about uh, what to do when those those hooks don't exist, but where they do, we should absolutely be grabbing onto them in the current legal system. But all I'll say quickly, since we're about out of time, is just that there's a stunning level of coordination that the Zuckerberg uh, conversation with Rogan highlights. I mean, this is across the board in an almost authoritarian sense. Um, and what's really sad is that nobody forced it, right? Like it's not uh, authoritarian in the sense that there was anything being compelled. It was just the groupthink uh, of our political elites was so strong that you had uh, the media the most powerful social platforms uh, for discourse and the government um, basically working hand in hand. We saw it with COVID. Um, this is another example, the Biden campaign. Um, you know, we've, we've seen it, the intelligence community, the Biden campaign, the media and social media were all working hand in hand here and nobody had to force it um, in a sort of typically authoritarian sense. So that's probably one of the most depressing things to consider. And, and with that, I'll turn it back over to, to Ben to continue our coverage of this, what, what is likely going to be another, you know, Russiagate style um, long story that, that we won't know um, everything about for, for many weeks to come, but to continue the coverage of the raid at Mar-a-Lago and the affidavit that was released. Yeah, from one depressing topic to another, although I will say in this one to add a little bit of levity, maybe the most entertaining part uh, in this kind of post-Republican post world that we're living in is the fact that this affidavit, the affidavit of her around the world, uh, which the government claimed, uh, I guess rightly, that it well, that they would redact it such that it would prove almost meaningless, uh, that they actually, in addition to heavily redacting the affidavit, I believe 11 pages were fully redacted. This is the affidavit, of course, that was supposed to provide the justification for the search warrant the raid uh, that authorized the raid of Mar-a-Lago. Uh, in addition, the document which lays out why there ought to be and where there ought to be redactions in the affidavit itself was heavily redacted. So redacted document, and then you not only couldn't see why they undertook this unprecedented shock and awe raid, you couldn't look at their reasons for justifying why you can't see what happened in that unprecedented shock and awe raid. And I think that perfectly represents a security state that we know, going back to Russiagate uh, to invoke that point, oftentimes played games by over-redacting documents to the nth degree, claiming national security secrets, sources and methods, et cetera, uh, of course, to stop us likely from seeing their malfeasance. And I only say that because we've seen this pattern play out time and time again on these documents. So on the merits of what was in the affidavit, maybe the most revealing part of the affidavit beyond the fact that the government did not make at all an overwhelming case for why it would engage in such an unprecedented raid, which speaks to the political weaponization that this whole operation smacks of. Uh, as Kevin Brock said, a former uh, F senior FBI official wrote in a piece at the Hill, they would have headlined, led this unredacted document, the unredacted portions uh, with the beef if they had the beef. 
in the document. The only other, I think, interesting part of it was the disclosure of the letter from Trump's attorneys, which basically shows the Trump team trying to cooperate with authorities, but also pointing out deficiencies with a potential case that was barely laid out in the unredacted portions of it. And on, on those merits, and I hesitate to go into the merits because uh, as we've established before, I think it's self-evident that this was a fishing expedition, but Margot Cleveland at the Federalist did an excellent job, I think, breaking down uh, how laughable the so-called novel arguments raised here by the DOJ were to justify this whole operation. So she writes in part, and I'll quote a little bit from her article. First, the Presidential Records Act, which is one of the uh, justifications for this raid, is not a criminal statute and violations of that federal law do not constitute a crime. Second, Presidential Records Act does not reach broad swaths of documents retained by a former president, including quote unquote, official records of an agency personal records and convenience copies of presidential records. And third, courts have refused to question a former president's conclusion that a record constitutes a personal record and not a presidential record. Then she goes into the espionage part of this and she writes, the DOJ bent the Espionage Act to fit the facts of Trump's possession of documents at Mar-a-Lago. The Biden administration couldn't target Trump for mishandling classified material, both because he declassified it and because the statute that criminalizes such mishandling doesn't reach a president or a former president. So instead, they tried to find a crime to get the man. And of course, they threw obstruction charges as the cherry on top over God knows what. But I do think this document uh, puts to bed the idea that this was really about nuclear secrets, even though the administration has been quick to report that the ODNI, the Director of National Intelligence, is out there reviewing you know, damage assessment associated with these documents. There are some in Trump world who have speculated that this was about essentially the deep state recovering incriminating documents associated with Russiagate. Uh, I, that certainly seems plausible in connection with this operation, although I would have to assume they probably know what Trump would have had in his possession and that there'd probably be more copies of those documents, one would think. Uh, but the only other thing that is worth noting, and Tucker Carlson rightly picked up on this uh, in a show the night before we recorded this, is that Cash Patel's name was not redacted in that document. So the DOJ, which claims to want to protect uh, its own, does not want to protect someone who held a variety of senior positions in the Trump administration. I would argue because he was most responsible uh, outside the administration, along with Devin Nunes, who he served on the House Intelligence Committee for exposing the corruption that was Russiagate. And Patel has claimed that he was essentially there and can corroborate the fact that the president had a standing order about declassification, that he called, he ordered for the declassification of all of these documents associated with Russiagate slash Spygate, which, of course, others in his administration subverted, sat on, did not ultimately release to the public in the waning hours of his presidency. And Patel claims that he has been subjected to death threats and bigotry as a consequence of his name being included in that document. I believe him more than the FBI and DOJ claiming that it's under assault from a MAGA army out there. Uh, and I think it's chilling and quite disturbing, but pointed and notable that his name was one of the few things of note material that was left unredacted in that document. So with that, I'm happy to turn it over to the group to talk about any of the specifics, you know, either on the merits or the broader 30,000 foot view of what's been transpiring here in this in this Florida court. 
Well, on the 30,000 foot view question, um, it continues to be more and more obvious that this is a fishing expedition. And we can tell that because it feels once again, like we are in the early days of the Russia collusion hoax. Some of the exact same reporters are involved. Uh, we were talking about this actually on Inez's IWF podcast uh, just yesterday that we taped. It's called High Noon and folks should tune into that as well. Um, but it, it's increasingly clear by the leaking that there's no there there. The innuendo about nuclear secrets, the innuendo about human sources, the innuendo about all of that, um, it, it to me is a very clear, glaring sign that we are dealing with um, another attempt to sort of do intelligence community gymnastics that would damn um, Donald Trump for things that may indeed be substantively problematic, but break hundreds of years of precedent and raid a former president's home problematic? Likely not. Um, and again, we see this over and over again, it's the same thing with Russia collusion. It's the same thing with the phone call Trump had with Zelensky. Every time that something um, gets close, they really think it, it gets close to breaking a, a big norm, whatever it is. Um, they think they can hold this up as the one thing. It's been happening since the Republican primaries in 2015, since Donald Trump said what he said about John McCain, since he said what he said in his announcement speech about um, people coming, immigrating migrants at the southern border. Everything. This is the one thing that is going to end Donald Trump. We hear that over and over again. There was a lull after the impeachment trials and the investigations. Um, and, and now it's just in the Russian investigation. And we're seeing it play out again. And the media is just as complicit once more. So I really enjoyed our buddy Raheem Kassam's Substack post, which admittedly was speculating, but Ben kind of hinted at this when he said that some on the right were talking about the possibility that this was really about recovering Russiagate-related documents. I would encourage listeners to go ahead and check out Raheem's Substack, which I, I thought made a, a, a decently compelling, at least, argument that this was ultimately about Russiagate. I, I just want to highlight two very brief kind of first, you know, first principles level points. The first is, just to reiterate here, Donald Trump was the commander in chief. The commander in chief of the military has plenary across the board power to declassify whatever the hell he wants to declassify. The Supreme Court has reaffirmed this over and over again, including a late 1980s case called Department of Navy versus Egan. He frankly does not have to follow whatever statutory or regular regulatory authority purports to bind other executive branch officials because he has inherent Article II constitutional authority. He literally could have just scribbled down something on a piece of paper, or informally said it. It doesn't matter. The other thing just to, to remember here is that whatever they recovered here, they waited over a year and a half. I mean, they literally waited over a year, a year and a half. This was this was always the lie about the so-called nuclear secrets thing, which was clearly leaked to the Washington Post as a CYA cover your rear end style exercise from the FBI. It never made sense in the first place here. So bear that in mind too, as you process this information, whatever you're reading in the affidavit, they waited a year and a half. So one of two things is true. On the one hand, it's really not that important, the documents that were seized, which militates obviously in favor of the fact that this raid was completely unnecessary. Or, or on the other hand, or possibly both things, the government is just that incompetent, that they did not realize that these documents were just simply aloof and missing for a year and a half. So just bear those higher level points in mind as well as you continue to process this unfolding story. Yeah, I think um, I agree with almost everything that Josh said about, I think we're really seeing the working out of some of these constitutional 
erosion of the very important constitutional norms over time. And this is, you know, the sort of stuff that Nancy Pelosi was saying, are you serious? Are you serious? Right back in the, in the tea party days, but we're seeing the real like rubber meets the road, um, consequences of it. So one of those things would be, of course, the expansion of the administrative state, but related to that is the loss of the power the president has over his own executive branch to the point where we're talking about a former president, you know, um, is, is like that, that it could possibly be a crime um, that, that the former president declassified some documents, uh, not according to procedure or not according to congressional statute. Like th this shows how much the erosion of the idea of the unitary executive of the president's legitimate power over executive um, over the executive branch actually is. And, and the second just a short point I'll make is this is like once again a reminder of the danger of confusing the criminal domestic system with intelligence procedures. Right. If, if we're talking about state secrets or whatever that Donald Trump has in a box in Mar-a-Lago, leaving aside the classification um, and you know legitimacy that runs through the president and that power that runs through the president, right? Um, you know, it's an encouragement to use the domestic legal enforcement in order to reach an intelligence goal, right? If you're if you're collecting intelligence, you can break all kinds of procedures, um, but th that's not supposed to be used for prosecution. Right. And, and so now we have a total conflation starting with Russiagate and basically in, in all of these episodes going forward, a conflation between the systems that are meant to essentially deal with information gathering abroad to protect America from uh, international threat and, and applying them in a domestic political context at home. Um, so I, I think this is just another episode of that. And with that, um, I'm going to go ahead and transfer to, to student loans. Um, there's obviously a big bailout this week. Um, the Biden administration releasing a plan uh, has several elements. Um, one, $10,000 of loan forgiveness to everybody um, up to an income of 125 per person. That means 250, um, $250,000, a quarter million dollars per couple are eligible for, for this $10,000 bailout. If you received Pell Grants, which are legitimately um, only given out to, to very low income individuals, um, then you have 20, potentially $20,000 in forgiveness uh, that the Biden administration is making you eligible for here. There also, there's some other um, important changes that have been flying under the radar. He extended the um, payment freeze for COVID through the end of the year after the midterms, obviously political. Um, and then finally, something that's getting absolutely no coverage uh, for those who are on income-based repayment plans, it actually halves the percentage that you're expected to pay of your income towards your student loan. So it goes from 10 to 5%, um, which is actually may end up being in many ways more fiscally disastrous over time than, than the immediate uh, bailout. So just a few uh, few points on this. Uh, this is obviously, uh, as I said last week, this, this is a absolute reverse Robin Hood situation. You are primarily taking from the working class and middle class of America and delivering benefits to the upper middle class. Um, and, and in our kind of conversations, really what we're doing is to the, the managerial activist class it are the primary beneficiaries of, of this. And the Biden administration has tried to, to hide this, uh, in my view, very cleverly using statistics. So, for example, you'll see a lot of um, charts and, and, and stats that have been passed around. I've seen it already like, repeated in all the major news outlets, in Axios, in, the WAP, in WAPO, and like everywhere, is using this breakdown of statistics that the Biden administration has put out which very conveniently rests, um, breaks the income of the recipients into less than $75,000. And then um, a couple categories after that up to 125. Well, 
that's above the median income in the United States, right? Um, but the, so the bulk of borrowers, especially because they skew young, the vast majority of borrowers are going to fall under that under 75,000 statistic. Um, so it's, it's a way of, of like playing with the numbers to try to disguise what's really happening here, which is, you know, the, the guy, the truck driver from Ohio is paying for the, the, um, the, the students that Lawrence tribe, uh, felt so sorry for, uh, Lawrence tribe over at Harvard law has said, Oh, this is going to help my students so much. Thank you, Joe Biden. Um, so we're, we're literally taking money from the truck drivers and giving it to students of Harvard law. Um, and fundamentally, that's what all student loan bailouts look like, because the underlying problem is that the working and middle class aren't going to university uh, in, in nearly as large numbers and in proportions as, as actually they did before we started this student loan mess. Um, I guess the, the, the final point would be this is obviously disconnected from the real problem, uh, which is the cost of college. The universities have benefited enormously from the blank check and major subsidies that not just Democrats, but stupid Republicans uh, have continued to extend to their to their political enemies, right? Their domestic political enemies. They continue to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars in subsidies, and now in backhand and bailouts, right? Um, but but Republicans have agreed to the subsidy part in every budget, going back decades, to essentially make it easier. <laughs> to do a wealth transfer to woke universities and to make it easier and in fact more necessary for more and more Americans to go into debt to get essentially an ideological credential. That is the system, the underlying system here. Um, and I think it's an appalling result of frankly Republican cowardice for the last 20 years. You know, we always uh, have this argument here about like, uh, what is it, punishing, punishing your enemies, rewarding your friends. Um, everyone should be able to agree, no matter sort of where your ideological background on the fights on the right are, that that we should not be spending billions and in, in back trillions of public dollars to essentially prop up the the epicenters of of um, the the woke ideology and of the leftist ideology and uh, support them in their their mission to continue to train up the elite of America and send them into the institutions where they cause the cultural revolutions in those institutions like the FBI, right, that we've been talking about. We're literally paying for our own destruction. And it is a, um, just once again, just like a, a real uh, condemnation or, or um, a real eye-opening moment if you look back at how Republicans have been willing to go along with this system that that necessarily, essentially, kills off everything that they claim to stand for. So um, with that, I'll, I'll, I'll toss it back out to, to you guys on, on the student loan issue. So the, the reverse Robin Hood is the right way to formulate this. Uh, that's definitely kind of the way that I've phrased it over the past week and a half as well. Just one other point to make though, because Inez kind of got at this when she referred to the you know rewarding friends, punishing enemies paradigm of possible governance. That really is what this policy actually is, right? This is the Democratic Party making a value judgment that the higher education cartel, and it is a cartel, and the DEI bureaucracies on campus and everything that kind of the intellectual rot, the degradation, the decadence that occur, that, America, that a higher education in America uh, currently consists of, this is the Democratic Party making a value judgment to prioritize boostering that cartel allowing them to have the moral hazard of, of, of spiking tuitions without any kind of repercussions at the expense of those who took out other loans, like auto loans or a mortgage or literally any other kind of loan here. There, there was never any kind of explanation whatsoever. There was never any attempt 
from anyone that I'm aware of, Green, Jean-Pierre, anyone, to attempt to explain why it is that the American taxpayer should be on the hook for hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of, of cross-subsidizing, bailing out their fellow students for taking out these egregious student loans to major in like lesbian dance theory or whatever, at the expense of kind of, you know, the proverbial or literal, as the case may be, electrician or plumber who just took out like a basic auto loan. The whole thing just stinks rock to bottom. But the point that I made in my column that I wrote on this topic last week was I, I really do hope that to some extent Republicans take away a lesson here that it is okay to engage in some level of tit-for-tat reciprocal politics where you do actually make value judgments, where you uh, where you basically say that neutrality is a lie, that liberal neutrality is an illusion and a lie, and you actually get your hands dirty and you enact some policies that actually robustly favor your constituents and your voting base. Because the Democrats have shown time and time again they are not afraid of doing that. They're actually quite competent at that. It's kind of scary. It's kind of terrifying, but they're quite competent at rewarding their voters, their constituencies, their, their donors. Republicans, I'm not sure, to put it mildly, are capable of doing the same thing. On the contrary, to the extent Republicans try to kind of reward their constituents, it looks a whole lot like the 2017 tax cut, which is basically just like a warmed over 1980s style supply side tax cut that frankly just kind of liberates a lot of corporations that are in hock to various forms of woke ideology. So I hope the Republicans learn the right lessons from this. I don't think Democrats have any idea what they've unleashed. Um, I think this is going to be a scar on the Democratic Party um, for a, a generation, at least. Uh, that's not to say Democrats have just lost all electoral success and sacrificed it on the altar of student loan forgiveness. Um, but I do think what I've seen has been, you know, if there are polls that show, let's say, 35%, 45% support for what Biden did, what that can't, what that can't measure very well and what it can't quantify is how intense the opposition is. So maybe 45% of the country supports it, but let's say 45% of the country uh, opposes it or 30% of the country opposes it, whatever the number is, that opposition is intense. Um, there are people I've never seen be as animated about any issue in politics as they have been about the loan forgiveness. Republicans are going to spend money all summer tying every Democrat to this. There's evidence that it's already working for Republicans in Georgia in the Herschel Walker race. Um, and, and Democrats are going to have to answer for what just happened with this for years to come. Um, and that will that will not go away because it is so intensely personal and so major. It has been a, a major turning point in so many people's lives. They built their lives around the decision to go into debt or to do something else to avoid not going into debt. Um, so it's, it's just deeply, deeply personal for a big chunk of people. Um, and as Democrats are making their transition uh, to being less of a party of the working class and more of a party of the suburbs, this is going to be a pivotal moment. It's funny uh, in a perverse way that with the the afterthought of all this is sort of the trillion dollar price tag that we're all fronting, even though they originally said $300 billion. And of course, the moral hazard associated with this, which is, again, like an afterthought. Uh, but the fact that this is going to, of course, incentivize people to take out more debt going forward, encourage the schools to raise their tuitions to even more otherworldly lever levels that are totally unjustifiable. Um, I think it's clear that this is an attempted vote buying scheme here. Um, it is the regime rewarding its own, you know, as has been laid out in you know, brilliant analyses by all three of you. At the end of the day, this is about subsidizing uh, the regime's foot soldiers and indoctrinators of future foot soldiers, plus 
in, in an indirect way, their schools, the institutions themselves as well. So it's rotten to its core. We also didn't even get to you know, the, the notion of the constitutionality of all this, which is is probably laughable that 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 you know we're concerned about it and no one in Washington DC is uh, of course we've all seen the clips of Nancy Pelosi saying this is something a president couldn't do but all of a sudden now it can be done and i think it's worth noting that contrast here Donald Trump can't take documents back to Mar-a-Lago that were boxed and shipped out 2 days before he left the office so that is while he was still president uh, but Joe Biden can wave his hand and forgive student loan debt and last but not least let's not forget here that the entire reason or one of the primary drivers of the spiraling costs in education and beyond the fact that it's been uh, that there have been thousands upon thousands of administrators hired at the cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars a year per in many cases which probably shouldn't exist in the first place but that was all enabled precisely because of the government inflating the education bubble the higher education bubble certainly in the first place. Uh, so the government creates a problem, uh, it waves a wand and seeks to forgive it, and all of the private risk uh, ends up being transferred to the public, to those who ought not to be bearing it. Uh, it it's, it's, it's clearly rubbing our noses in it, and particularly uh, those who don't have an education, and, and good for them, by the way, for not going into these indoctrination factories, quite frankly. Yeah, um, we're, we're going to transition, but just to, to put a bow on that, there, there are no banks in this scenario. And I think that's one of the most consistent kind of misinformation facts that's out there. And this is my turn to call this misinformation. The number of people who answer me, well, the, the banks can take care of it. There are no banks. 93% of these loans are held directly by the taxpayer through the Department of Education. You are the bank. Um, so with that, I think we're going to turn it over to Emily for our last segment on uh, this very disturbing trend of a larger and larger section of the male workforce that just isn't, isn't in the workforce. Yeah, um, and, and to make up some time, I'll just be fairly brief and say Nicholas Everstadt is out on Labor Day, so September 5th, with a new edition of his 2016 book, which was called Men Without Work. Um, he wrote a new introduction that was crunching the numbers you know, after the pandemic. So now that it's the fall of 2022, what does this phenomenon look like? I mean, it's a hugely important trend. You have um, men getting by in various ways while sitting on the sidelines, mostly of the workforce. And here's a quote from the new book. As of this writing, more than 11 million job openings are unfilled. For every unemployed person, two positions stand vacant. Job openings so exceed the ranks of America's unworking prime age men that every member of this idle army could be placed in a job and there would still be more than 3.9 million jobs awaiting candidates. What we know based on Eberstadt's crunching of Bureau of Labor Statistics is, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistic numbers, is that uh, the way most of these men are filling their time screens, screens on screens on screens on screens. Um, so this has been going on for a long time. Uh, this is a trend from 2016 um, and 2016 on. In the 2016 book, Men Without Work, now Eberstadt says it could be called Work Without Men. There's something that's keeping men from working. Um, the stimulus checks, obviously, if you parcel those out and live with a parent or you know, something like that, um, you can kind of coast and 
you do you know whatever you want basically and play xbox or whatever it is um i think it's clear that these men need sympathy uh because there's a lot of pain over half i think are using opioids maybe around a third i'll, I'll check the number in the book for the final thoughts um but you know there's there's a lot of pain elites deindustrialize a huge swath of the country with no backup plan um and and no real way to catch people who were falling through the cracks of our society and we are now left after the pandemic with a worsening problem that is affecting every single cultural problem we talk about. It's absolutely part of the student loan conversation. Um, underemployment is really high. So uh, if you guys wanna jump in, I think it's this is one of those things that is, is not part of our daily political discourse, but really should be. Yeah, um, it's interesting you mentioned the deindustrialization because, uh, and I highly recommend Emily's interview actually with, um, with Everstat and on the Federalist podcast, which I listened to earlier today. Um, so this actually, to some extent, throws a wrench into what, what might be called the Trumpian narrative of, of deindustrialization and of elites selling out, which all of that can be true, right? Um, but there's this parallel problem of people who are totally disconnected from civil society. So that's what this data shows and this book shows is that uh, a lot of these men, they're mostly not married. Um, they, have, they, don't, they don't go to a house of worship. They're spending the equivalent of a full-time job on screens um, and entertainment every 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 uh, week, and you know, as Emily said, I think that there's there's you know a way to talk about this that is I think they are quite you know figures of sort of atomization and sympathy. Um, but that being said, it's it, the whole story is not that there aren't the jobs available. I think um, Eversat goes out of his way to show there are jobs available, and in fact, even men who have lower educational attainment, so men who, for example, have a high school diploma or even dropped out of a high school diploma um, and never got their diploma, dropped out of high school rather, um, they have uh, like they have different, wildly different rates depending on, for example, whether or not they're married or where they were born. So immigrants don't seem to have this kind of, of like structural issue finding a job. So that suggests that the jobs exist, um, but there is this consistent core of men. And the other the other thing that I think was really interesting about um, whatever status written is that this really started in the 1960s. Like this, the, the existence of a actually moderately large chunk of society of men between the ages, like working prime working age, who are not working, not in um, getting an education or furthering their education, and not in any kind of job training. Um, that like being a large and persistent part of society really started in the 1960s and not before. Um, so I, I just, I think this is actually something that should make all of us think a little harder about the picture that we've been really building since 2015 and 2016 of what's happened to Americans, um, the American working class, because alongside it, there is this kind of non-working class part of America <laughs> um, that, that has its own issues and, and is gonna require its own solutions. Yeah, I, I, so I definitely would encourage everyone to check out this study from Eberstad. I mean, I, I guess here's what I have to, to add to this. I certainly agree with everything that Ines just said. I think it was actually quite well said. Um, so I, I did a panel at the um, Florida Young Republicans, Miami Young Republicans annual conference uh, here in Miami this past weekend. I, I did the panel with 
my good friend Dave Raboy. It was kind of funny. The title of this panel was um, what was it called? It was called like uh, the New Right uh, colon What Time Is It in America? And I was actually wearing my T-shirt from Dave's uh, Late Republic Nonsense Substack that just says what I know. I the T-shirt says I know what time it is. Okay, anyway, um, I, I I kind of surprised myself. I was talking about like a lot of like so-called New Right kind of NatCon kind of Claremont Institute adjacent themes, but the one time that I found myself going on almost like an unhinged rant where I just really, um, really, I was just talking so fast and so impassioned that I almost didn't realize what I was saying was when the moderator asked me about deindustrialization and like what it has done to the American heartland. And I guess I surprised myself. I, I didn't realize quite how fiery and how passionate I was about that. But I think in the middle of that kind of like verbal diarrhea that I let out there over the weekend, one thing that that I said was that we should be able to pay slightly higher consumer prices on Amazon, supermarket, anywhere else for, for the sake of our fellow citizens, for the sake of, of giving good jobs for these men, whether they're working class, whether they're middle class, whatever. And it kind of just gets back to like the Orin Cass 2018 thesis of you know, the ones in future worker, just, just the dignity of physical toil, of physical manufacturing. You know, from like a very like tratty kind of traditionalist perspective, I mean, the white collarization, the technologicalization of, of of your nine to five job has probably had like really concrete negative impacts on men because there's something to be said for physical labor, for getting into the manufacturing plant, for physical toil. I say that, of course, as someone who who you know sits at his computer and reads and tweets and podcasts and all that stuff all day long. But there's something very much to be said for that. And, you know, I'm happy that we're talking about it because just the lack of, of, of I think, of physical toil manufacturing jobs is, is, is a problem in myriad ways. But simply for the sake of, of, of depression rates and all of that, it probably probably more so than anything else. Well, so since, uh, you know, the 1960s were invoked and Everstat has done certainly work on the great society as well. I mean, there has to be. Uh, at least a correlative here and maybe a causative between you know, the, the large expansion of the social welfare state and the fact that you could even have a percentage of society, you know, several million people, prime working age males who have dropped out of the workforce. Now, part of this is also, of course, that you've had a degradation of a culture which used to look with shame upon people uh, who could work and would not work. Um, and it's not to say that we shouldn't have empathy for those who, through no fault of their own, of course, have ended up out of a workforce or have tried to get jobs and failed. Um, but there were guardrails in place societally. There were cultural taboos that wouldn't be touched and such that would have avoided uh, the kind of situation that we face today, which I think is a tragic proxy for the direction that the West goes. I mean, it's kind of in two related points or a related point that's interesting that haven't fully worked through in my own mind is you know, how do you explain that we in the West have grown so rich, so decadent that we don't even have replacement level birth rates? Like, should it be that when a society grows uh, rich that it sh should be able to support more people or that actually then those, particularly the elites, uh, have declining birth rates, even such that they're not at replacement level? Same thing here. We've developed such riches and decadence that people can opt out of workforce altogether, be addicted to screens, infantilized, non-productive, and you know, essentially be men in name only from the perspective of, are you really an adult and a functional member of society if you aren't working a job, building a family, passing something on to others so that your society is actually gonna be able to perpetuate itself and better itself 
going forward. Uh, these are questions that do transcend public policy, even though public policy certainly significantly impacts them. Uh, but most of all, I think these are tragic trends and a proxy or some uh, one point that you can look to uh, when you think about the fact that the West is going in an unsustainably dark and disturbing direction. Um, and I think with that, we're going to go ahead and, and transfer to final thoughts, and I'll take the, the moderator's prerogative, perhaps, and go first, um, just to, to put one more point on the student loan question. Um, there, there's, a, there's a dumb way to talk about this uh, that really reminds me of that meme, Old Economy Steve, um, that was like a, a meme, I don't know, five or six years ago, but um, it had, you know, sort of boomer age dad-like figure saying, well, why don't you just send in your application, son? Um, that's how I got hired, right? So uh, there, there's that aspect to this. I think a lot of Republicans talk about this and people on the right talk about this in terms of personal responsibility of 18-year-olds. And it, it's it's not that I disagree that an 18-year-old is an adult, um, but I don't think that 18-year-olds are wildly more irresponsible today than they were 30 years ago. What's, what's really changed here is the cost of university and the value of a degree that doesn't back that up. And that is a systemic problem that requires a systemic solution, not kind of blaming 18-year-olds for signing on the dotted line when all of society told them that was the responsible and right thing to do, um, was to go to the best school that will have you no matter how much it costs, because don't worry, you'll pay off your loans. Um, it seems to me to be a bit much to, to sort of um, heap moral scorn on 18-year-olds when U.S. Congress was so fiscally irresponsible uh, by handing out these unsecured six-figure loans to every 17-year-old in America. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that framing is accurate, and I think it really will hurt the right um, if we talk about it only in that way. Uh, and, and finally, one, one little point, um, one of the, the talking points of the administration, uh, as well as, of course, filtered through the administration's mouthpieces in the media, um, has been that this is a problem that disproportionately uh, affects women, right? That women are getting screwed by student loans because they hold more student loan debt. Um, it, there's a truly amazing piece out in Axios from this where they say have several bullet points um, suggesting why it might be the case that, excuse me, women hold more student loan debt. Uh, they, they suggest it's because women make more on average than men. That's a, a myth uh, in terms of, of making that for same work. That's, that's a myth that's been blown up I don't know how many times at this point that persists, but they have a bunch of these bullet points about how women are more oppressed. Well, none, nowhere in those bullet points um, <laughs> does it mention that in fact, there are just fewer men going to college now. So it, it's truly remarkable how the feminist movement has taken essentially an advancement of women at the expense of men. There are more women now disproportionately going to college than men and that, that increases in the higher degrees, right? Um, they've taken that, and turn it around into yet another oppression of women, right? Because of that, women hold more debt of student loan debt, therefore women are oppressed, right? So it's just, it's, it's one of those utterly ridiculous um, uh, sort of Rubik's cube of a situation where there is no possible combination of how the world could be uh, that would not lead to the conclusion that women are oppressed in this country. I just thought that was kind of funny and worth throwing out there. My my final thoughts sort of piggybacks on that. Um, the statistic that I referenced earlier, I pulled it up from Everstat's book. It is about half of men who have 
dropped out of the workforce, aren't looking for work, are prime working age, about half of them report using some sort of pain medication every day. Um, so that's the, the number I was referencing. It wasn't specifically opioids, but to Inez's point, um, I know we've talked about this a lot and I reference it all the time, probably ad nauseum because it was what I did in college. But when I was helping Christina Hoff Summers on the re-release of War Against Boys um, in like 2012-ish, I, as a kid who grew up in the 90s and was in school in the 90s, looked at all of these trends that Christina had demonstrated in like 1999. Um, and it terrified me to my core because I realized there were going to be massive, massive, massive cultural implications of cutting down recess time, um, disciplining boys for rough and tumble play, feminizing the public school system, all of these, these different things where we made school much easier or much more accommodating to girls. And we made it easier for girls to learn. And we didn't adjust for how that would become uh, or how that those gains would come at the expense of men. So, you know, women making gains, great. Doing it at the expense of men without any preparation, without any adjustments for that is why you have um, this vast army of men who were paid not to work in stimulus checks. Um, maybe they dabble in the gig economy. I don't know. Um, maybe they live with their parents. I don't know. Um, they get money from various places, whatever it is, we have a surplus of jobs and we have men who are watching screens and taking pain medication. And um, that is a, an incredibly sorry state of affairs for uh, the, the United States of America. And it's not a part of our national conversation at all because the people who control the national conversation don't know anybody uh, like that. They don't know the people who have checked out of civil society. They don't know the people who are taking pain medication every day um, and who would rather not work um, than work because the alternative is some disgusting Amazon factory uh, where you're treated like a robot. So all that is to say, um, this is a, it's, it's sort of mind boggling how little we talk about that. So I, I, I guess I'll talk about an issue that has faded from the public consciousness over the past few weeks, but for a brief kind of period of time there, it was much talked about, and that's kind of semiconductors and industrial policy and the CHIPS Act. So on my own podcast, Newsweek, which I would very selfishly encourage you to listen to, of course, I had on Orrin Cast this week, and we talked about this, among other topics and conversation. We spent a lot of time with student loans. We talked about the semiconductor debate as well. So the CHIPS Act ended up passing with not a ton of Republican support, but if you kind of read between the lines here, and I think Orrin's right to point this out. If you look at what some of the critics were saying, some of the critics like Kevin Roberts of the Heritage Foundation, like Jim Banks, um, the populist inclined uh, Republican congressman from Indiana, their criticism was not so much on kind of Tea Party era kind of cronyism, winners and losers, kind of free market absolutism grounds. The criticism of the, of the CHIPS Act was actually that it didn't go far enough, that it didn't go far enough actually in affirmatively preventing recipients of aid to actually then go ahead and invest that money in manufacturing, in semiconductor production, in foundries over in China, or really anywhere other than America for that matter there. And I guess I just want to underscore the point of how absurd it is that U.S. policymakers have let themselves get to a position where something like 80 to 90 percent of the most advanced chips in the world are really made by one company, by Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And moreover, that one company happens to be located in a city 
in Taipei and Taiwan that are, oh, by the way, like our arch geopolitical foe, the People's Republic of China, is thinking about invading basically every day. I mean, from a kind of like a black pill perspective, it's probably only a matter of a time. And it gets back to just this kind of, uh, you know, a twilight era of the Cold War, kind of 1990s era mindset that was really encapsulated by this Bush 41 White House economist who basically said, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, potato chips, computer chips, what's the difference, right? You know, this is kind of just... This is, this is kind of like a caricatured straw man version of Adam Smith and like Ricardo's kind of, um, you know, theories on trade and comparative advantage and things of like that. But, you know, the point that Oren made in my podcast, and again, he's right about this. There is no intrinsic comparative advantage that that Taiwan or, for that matter, South Korea and Samsung has when it comes to semiconductors. You know, the, the fact that that TSMC and since Samsung have become way more prolific at making three nanometer chips or whatever than Intel or any other US company is a direct function of state support and kind of deliberate policy decisions to channel intellectual capital and human capital into these fields. And I think that, you know, the sooner that Americans realize that, whether the chips act that passed happened to be perfect, um, you know, it seems like it, it was it was not perfect, it was probably an improvement on, on the status quo ante. But the more that we start to realize that, the better, because it, it is just absurd that we are in a position here where our F-35s, our computers, smartphones, whatever, like all of our stuff is basically dependent on these small chips and, uh, you know, an island halfway around the world where our arts geopolitical folks thinking of marching in every day. They produce the most advanced chips. So it's just truly an insane world. Um, but I just wanted to get that off my chest, I guess. Okay, I'll be brief. Speaking of insane worlds, uh, to go back to my segment on kind of the, the Mar-a-Lago raid affidavit, but actually the 30,000 foot point, I think one thing that the affidavit does affirm, which is quite significant, is that essentially, and this to the points made by our other esteemed anchors here, uh, mimics in a lot of ways the other get Trump scandals out there. Essentially, this was an angry archivist or several angry archivists working hand in glove with the Biden White House plus DOJ slash FBI in a fishing expedition, get Trump effort. Uh, the affidavit itself does not dispel that entire narrative. Uh, this comes 19 months after the documents were actually moved just outside the 90 day, you know, supposedly uh, no political investigation period for uh, the FBI and DOJ, even though they've broken that repeatedly in the past. Uh, and I think one one way to look at this is, yes, there's a lawfare component of this, but there's also the information warfare component of being able to hide the truth behind the redactions leak out that which is viewed as politically important, suck the oxygen out of the room and reportage as we go into a midterm election and divert from the various disasters that our regime has inflicted upon us, even though this is a disaster in and of itself. And I think going forward, maybe we ought to think about what the broader ramifications of the raid are, both in 2022, 2024, and then to our Republican order to the extent any of it exists uh, going forward, because this is that substantial an effort, even though it is so laughable on its merits. And with that, uh, on behalf of Ben, Emily, Josh, thank you so much for tuning in to NatCon Squad. I'm Inez Stepin, and I've been filling in for Rachel Boulevard, who will be back next week. Uh, see you at the next NatCon Squad. <laughs>